Mr. Chief Justice. Oh, the Senator from Arizona. I sent a question to the desk on behalf of myself and Senator Scott of Florida, Hawley, and Hoven. Thank you. The question is for counsel for the president, uh, from Senator McSally, Senator Scott from Florida, Senator Hawley, and Senator Hoven. Chairman Schiff just argued that, quote, we think there's a crime here of bribery or extortion or, quote, something akin to bribery, end quote. Do the articles of impeachment charge the president with bribery, extortion, or anything akin to it? Do they allege facts sufficient to prove either crime? If not, are the House managers' discussion of crimes they neither alleged nor proved appropriate in this proceeding? Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, thank you for that question. And no, the articles of impeachment do not charge the crime of bribery, extortion, or any other crime. And that's a critical point because as the Supreme Court has explained, no principle of procedural due process is more clearly established than that of notice of the specific charge and a chance to be heard in a trial of the issues raised by that charge are among the constitutional rights of every accused. That was the Supreme Court in Cole versus Arkansas. And the court has also explained that for over 130 years, a court cannot permit it has been the rule that a court cannot permit a defendant to be tried on charges that are not made in the indictment against him. That is the rule in the criminal law, and it is also the case for impeachments. It is the House's responsibility to make an accusation, and a specific accusation in articles of impeachment. The House had the opportunity to do that, and they did that. And the charges that they put in the articles were abuse of power on a vague standard that they made up and obstruction of Congress. They put some discussion about other things in a House Judiciary Committee report, but they did not put that in the articles of impeachment. And if this were a criminal trial in an ordinary court, and Mr. Schiff had done what he just did on the floor here and start talking about crimes of bribery and extortion that were not in the indictment, it would have been an automatic mistrial. We'd all be done now, and we could go home. And Mr. Schiff knows that, because he's a former prosecutor. It is not permissible for the House to come here failing to have charged, failing to have put in articles of impeachment any crime at all, and then to start arguing that actually, oh, we think there is some crime involved, and actually we think we actually proved it, even though we provided no notice we were going to try to prove that. It's totally impermissible. It's a fundamental violation of due process. And scholars have pointed out those rules apply equally in cases of impeachment. Charles Black and Philip Bobbitt explained in their work, Impeachment, a handbook that is regarded as one of the authorities collecting sources of, uh, of, of authority on impeachments. They said, quote, the senator's role is solely one of acting on the accusations, the articles of impeachment, voted by the House of Representatives. The Senate cannot lawfully find the president guilty of something not charged by the House any more than a trial jury can find a defendant guilty of something not charged in the indictment, end quote. So what Manager Schiff just attempted here was totally improper. It would have resulted in a mistrial in any court in this country. 
And there is nothing that has been introduced in the facts that would satisfy the elements of a crime of extortion or bribery either. And to attempt, after making their opening, after not charging anything in the articles that is a crime, after not specifying any crime, after providing no notice that they're going to attempt to argue a crime, in the question and answer session to try to change the charges that they've made against the President of the United States and to say that actually there's bribery and extortion is totally unacceptable. It's not permissible. And this body should not consider those arguments. They were not permissible bounds for argument. They're not included in the articles of impeachment, and they should be ignored. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Yes. The Senator from New Mexico. Thank you for the recognition, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, I have uh, sent a question to the desk. I'm joined in this question by Senators Blumenthal, Leahy, and Whitehouse. Thank you. The question from Senator, Senator Udall, joined by Senators Blumenthal, Leahy, and Whitehouse, is to the House managers. The President's counsel has argued that Hunter Biden's involvement with Burisma, Burisma created a conflict of interest for his father, Joe Biden. President Trump, the Trump Organization, and his family, including those who serve in the White House, maintain significant business interests in foreign countries and benefit from foreign payments and investments. By the standard the President's counsel has applied to Hunter Biden, should Mr. Kushner and Ms. Trump's conflicts of interest with foreign governments also come under investigation? Mr. Chief Justice and to the Senators, thank you so much for that question. Let me just preface what I'm about to say with this statement. This has been a tough few days. Um, it's been a trying time for each of us and for our nation. But I just want to say this in response to the question that has been posed. I, I stand before you as the mother of three sons. I'm sure that many of you in this chamber have children, sons and daughters, and grandchildren that you think the world of. My children's last name is Demings. And so when they go out to get a job, I wonder if there are people who associate my sons with their mother and their father. I just believe as we go through this very tough, very difficult uh, debate about whether to impeach and remove the President of the United States that we stay focused the last few days, we've seen many distractions. Many things have been said to take our minds off of the truth, off of why we're really here. In my former line of work, I used to call it working with smoke and mirrors. Anything that will take your attention off of what's painfully obvious, what's there in plain view. The reason why we're here has nothing to do with anybody's children, as we've talked about. The reason why we're here is because the President of the United States, the 45th President, used the power of his office to try to shake down, I'll use that term because I'm familiar with it, a foreign power to interfere 
into this year's election. In other words, the President of the United States tried to cheat and then tried to get this foreign power, this newly elected president, to spread a false narrative that we know is untrue about interference in our election. That's why we are here, and it really would help, I believe, the situation if the Attorney General, perhaps the Department of Justice, who's been pretty silent, would issue a ruling or an opinion about any person of authority, especially the President of the United States, using or abusing that authority to invite other powers into interfering in our election. And so, Mr. Chief Justice, I will just close my remarks as I began them. Let us stay focused. This doesn't have anything to do with the President's children or the Biden's children. This is about the President's wrongdoing. Thank you. Thank you. Senator from Idaho. Mr. Chief Justice, on behalf of myself, Senator Risch, Senator Cruz, Graham, Braun, Moran, and Bozeman, I send a question to the desk for the counsel for the president. The question uh, from Senator Crapo and the other senators uh, for the counsel for the president. Does the evidence in the record show that an investigation in the Burisma Biden matter is in the national interest of the United States and its efforts to stop corruption? Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, thank you for that question. And the straightforward answer is yes, the evidence does show that it would be in the, in the interest of the United States. In fact, the evidence on that point is abundant. Here's what we know. Hunter Biden was appointed to the board of an energy company in Ukraine without any apparent experience that would qualify him for that position. He was appointed shortly after his father, the Vice President, became the Obama administration's point man for policy on Ukraine. We know that his appointment raised several red flags at the time. Chris Hines, the stepson of the then Secretary of State, severed his business relationship with Hunter, citing Hunter's lack of judgment in joining the board of that company, Burisma, because Burisma was owned by an oligarch who was repeatedly under investigation for corruption for money laundering and other offenses. Contemporaneous press reports speculated that Hunter's role with Burisma might undermine US efforts, led by his father then at that time, to promote the US anti-corruption message in Ukraine. The Washington Post said, quote, the appointment of the vice president's son to Ukrainian oil board looks nepotistic at best, nefarious at worst, end quote. There were other articles. There was one uh, that reported, quote, the credibility of the United States was not helped 
by the news that Hunter had been on the board of the directors of Burisma. There was another article saying, sadly, the credibility of Mr. Biden's message may be undermined by the association of his son with the Ukrainian natural gas company, Burisma Holdings, which is owned by a former government official suspected of corrupt practices. And it went on. Reports from the Wall Street Journal said that activists here, that is in the Ukraine, say that the U.S.'s anti-corruption message is being undermined as his son receives money from a former Ukrainian official who is being investigated for graft. At the same time, within the Obama administration, officials raised questions. The uh, Special Envoy for Energy Policy, Amos Hochstein, raised the matter with the Vice President. Similarly, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Kent testified that he too voiced concerns with Vice President Biden's office. Everyone who was asked in the proceedings before the House of Representatives agreed that there was at least an appearance of a conflict of interest when Mr. Biden's son was appointed to the board of this company. That included Ambassador Yovanovitch, Deputy Assistant Secretary Kent, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, Jennifer Williams, Ambassador Sondland, Dr. Fiona Hill, and Ambassador Taylor. They all agreed there was an appearance of a conflict of interest. And even in the transcript of the July 25th telephone call, President Zelensky himself acknowledged the connection between the Biden and Burisma incident, the firing of the prosecutor who reportedly had been looking into Burisma when Vice President Biden openly acknowledged he leveraged a billion dollars in U.S. loan guarantees to make sure that that particular prosecutor was fired. He, he openly acknowledged it was an explicit quid pro quo. You don't get a billion dollars in loan guarantees unless and until that prosecutor is fired. My plane's leaving in six hours, he said on the tape. And when, Vice, when the president, President Trump, raised this in the July 25th call, President Zelensky recognized that this related to corruption. And he said, the issue of the investigation of the case, and he's referring to the case of Burisma, is actually the issue of making sure to restore the honesty, so we will take care of that. And he later said in an interview that he recognized that the President Trump had been saying to him, things are corrupt in Ukraine, and he was trying to explain, no, we're going to change that. There's not going to be corruption. So that explicit exchange in the July 25th call shows that President Zelensky recognized that that Biden-Burisma incident had an impact on corruption and anti-corruption. And so it was definitely undermining the U.S. message on anti-corruption. And it was a perfectly legitimate issue for the president to raise with President Zelensky to make clear that the United States did not condone anything that would seem to interfere with legitimate investigations and to enforce the proper anti-corruption message. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Senator from Illinois. Thank you. Senator Durbin's question is directed to the House managers. Would you please respond to the answer that was just given by the President's counsel?
Mr. Chief Justice, Senators. The President sought Ukraine's help in investigating the Bidens only after reports suggested Vice President Biden might enter the 2020 presidential race and would seriously challenge President Trump in the polls. President Trump had no interest in Biden, Biden's Obama-era Ukraine work in 2017 or 2018 when Biden was not running against him for president. None of the 17 witnesses in the impeachment inquiry provided any credible evidence, no credible evidence, to support the allegation that former Vice President Biden acted inappropriately in any way in Ukraine. Instead, witnesses testified that the former Vice President was carrying out official U.S. policy in coordination with the international community when he advocated for the ouster of a corrupt Ukrainian official. In short, the allegations are simply unfounded. President Trump's own handpicked special envoy to Ukraine, Ambas Ukraine Ambassador Kurt Volker knew they were unfounded too. He testified that he confronted the president's attorney, Mr. Giuliani, about this conspiracy theories and told him that, quote, it is simply not credible to me that Joe Biden would be influenced in his duties as vice president by money or things for his son or anything like that. I've known him for a long time. He's a person of integrity and, that, and that's not credible. Giuliani, Giuliani acknowledged that he did not find one of the sources of, of these allegations, a former Ukrainian prosecutor to be credible. So even Giuliani knew the allegations were false. Our own Justice Department confirmed that the president never spoke to the Attorney General about Ukraine or any investigation into Vice President Biden. If President Trump genuinely believed that there was a legitimate basis for, to, for, to request Ukraine's assistance in law enforcement investigations, there are specific formal processes that he should have followed. Specifically, he could have asked the DOJ to make an official request for assistance through the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty. It's worth noting the President only cares about Hunter Biden to the extent that he is the Vice President's son, and therefore a means through which to smear a political opponent. But President Trump specifically mentioned President, Vice President Biden in, in asking for the removal of the former prosecutor on that July 25 call. That is what he wanted, not an investigation into Hunter Biden. This is yet another reason you know that there is no basis for investigating Vice President Biden. Can we get slide 52 up? The timing shows clearly that the, despite the fact that this conduct occurred in 2015, it wasn't until Vice President Biden began consistently beating Trump in national polls in the spring of 2019 by significant margins that the president targeted Biden. He was scared of losing. The president wanted to cast a cloud over a formal political opponent. This wasn't about any genuine concern of wrongdoing. 
The evidence proves that this was solely about the president wanting to make sure that he could do whatever it took to make sure that he could win. So he froze the critical money to Ukraine to coerce Ukraine to help him attack his political opponent and secure his reelection. Well, the President of the United States cannot use our taxpayer dollars to pressure a foreign government to do his personal bidding. No one is above the law. Thank I you. Back. The Senator from South Carolina. Thank you, sir. I send a question to the desk on behalf of myself, Senators Crapel and Graham for the White House Counsel. The question is from Senator Scott to the White House Counsel. House managers claim that the Biden-Burisma affair has been debunked. What agency within the government or independent investigation led to the debunking? Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate, there is no evidence in the record about any investigation, let alone debunked, sham, discredited, or as Manager Jeffries told you tonight, phony. The House managers haven't cited any evidence in the record because none exists. A couple of days ago, I read to you a quote and statements from Vice President Biden dealing with corruption in Ukraine. What I didn't tell you was he made those statements before the Ukrainian parliament directly. He spoke about the historic battle of corruption. He spoke about fighting corruption, specifically in the energy sector. He spoke about no sweetheart deals. He said oligarchs and non-oligarchs must play by the same rules. Corruption siphons away resources from the people. It blunts economic growth, and it affronts the human dignity. Those were Vice President Biden's words. So the real question is this. Is corruption related to the energy sector in Ukraine run by a corrupt Ukrainian oligarch who was paying our Vice President's son and his son's business partner millions of dollars for no apparent legitimate reason while his father was overseeing our country's relationship with Ukraine merit any public inquiry, investigation, or interest? The answer is yes. And simply by saying it didn't happen is ridiculous. And with all due respect to the House managers inciting to our children, the message to our children, especially when you're overseeing a corruption and trying to root it out in another country, is to make sure your children aren't benefiting from it. That's what should be happening. Not to sit there and say that it's okay. The House managers don't deny that there's a legitimate reason to do an investigation. They just say it was debunked, it's a sham, it's legitimate, but they don't tell you when it happened. And we all remember the email that Chris Hines sent.
keep this in mind. He is the stepson of the Secretary, then Secretary of State, John Kerry. He sends an official email to the State Department, to the Chief of Staff, to John Kerry, and his special assistant. The subject is Ukraine. There's no question, when you look at that email, that it's a warning shot to say, I don't know what they're doing, but we're not invested in it. He's taking a giant step back. And think about the words, and remember the video that we saw about Hunter Biden. What did he say? I'm not going to open my kimono. I'm not going to open my kimono when he was asked how much money he was making. In one month, in one month alone, Hunter Biden and his partner made as much, almost as much as every senator and congressman, just in one month alone what you earn in a year. And you don't think that merits inquiry? Does anyone here think, when they say it's a debunked investigation that didn't happen, that we wouldn't remember if there was testimony of Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, Secretary of State John Kerry, his stepson, their business partner, his chief of staff, and his special assistant. How can you tell the American people it doesn't merit inquiry when our vice president's son is supposedly doing this for corporate transparency in Ukraine? He's going to oversee the legal department of a Ukrainian company? He's going to help them? And if you look at his statement that I read to you beforehand, there's another part of it from October of 2019. If you want to know whether he thought it dealt with outside of Ukraine in just the Burisma, he says he was advising Burisma on its corporate reform initiatives, an important aspect of fueling Burisma's international growth and diversity. And listen to this statement by Hunter Biden's attorney. Vibrant energy production, particularly natural gas, was central to Ukraine's independence and to stemming the tide of Vladimir Putin's attack on the principles of a democratic Europe. Do you think he understood when he was getting the millions of dollars what his father was doing? The only problem is that statement didn't come out till October of 2019. Only when the news story started to break, only when the House managers raised these issues did people start to talk about it. Tell us, tell us where we saw Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, John Kerry testify about it. Tell us where you did it when you did your impeachment hearings. I don't remember seeing that testimony. I don't remember seeing the bank records. We put the bank records in front of you. And the people are entitled to know what exactly was going on. Thank you, counsel. The, the senator from Oregon. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. On behalf of the senator from New Mexico, Martin Heinrich, and myself, I have a question to send to the desk. Thank you. The question from Senator Merkley and other senators is for counsel to the president. Please clarify your previous answer about the Bolton manuscript. When exactly did the first person on the president's defense team first learn of the allegations in the manuscript? Secondly, Mr. Bolton's lawyer publicly disputes that any information in the manuscript could reasonably be considered classified. Was the determination to block its publication on the basis that it contains classified information made solely by career officials 
or were political appointees in the White House Counsel's Office or elsewhere in the White House involved? Mr. Chief Justice, um, Senator, to address your question specifically, the allegation that came out in the New York Times article about a conversation that is allegedly reported in the manuscript between the President and Ambassador Bolton, uh, officials, lawyers in the White House Counsel's Office learned about that allegation for the first time on Sunday afternoon when the White House was contacted by the New York Times. Um, in terms of the classification review, it is conducted at the NSC. There, the White House Counsel's Office is not involved in classification review, determining what's classified or not classified. Uh, I, I, I can't state the specifics. My understanding is that it's conducted by career officials at the NSC, but it's handled by the NSC. So I'm not in a position to give you full information on that. My understanding is it's being done by career officials, but it is not being done by lawyers in the White House Counsel's Office. And I hope that, that answers your question, Senator. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Chief Justice. Senator from Alaska. Mr. Chief Justice, I sent a question to the desk on behalf of myself and Senator Langford for the President's Counsel. Thank you. Question from Senator Sullivan and Langford to the uh, counsel for the president. There has been conflicting testimony about how long the Senate might be tied up in obtaining additional evidence. At the beginning of this trial, the minority leader offered 11 amendments to obtain additional evidence in the form of documents and depositions from several federal agencies. If the Senate had adopted all 11 of these amendments, how long do you think this impeachment trial would take? Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate, it would take a long time. It would take a long time just to get through those motions. But there have been 17 witnesses. We're talking about now additional witnesses that the managers have put forward and that Democratic leader Schumer has discussed, he's discussed four witnesses in particular, as if this body would, if it were to grant witnesses, would say, yes, you get those four witnesses, and the White House and the President's Council gets what? Whatever I want. That's what he said, Mr. Schumer, whatever I want, here's who I want. I want Adam Schiff. I want Hunter Biden. I want Joe Biden. I want, I want the whistleblower. I want, to, I want to also understand there may be additional people within the House Intelligence Committee that have had conversations with that whistleblower. I get anybody we want. By the way, if we get anybody we want, we'll be here for a very long time. The fact of the matter is, we're not here to argue witnesses tonight, but it obviously is an undercurrent. But to say that this is not going to extend this proceeding, months. Because understand something else, despite the you know, executive privilege and other nonsense, I suspect Manager Schiff, smart guy, he's going to say, wait a minute, I got some speech and debate privileges that may be applicable to this. I'm not saying that they are, but they may raise it, be legitimate to raise it. 
So this is a process that we would be, this would be the first of many weeks. I, I think we've got to be clear. They put this forward in an aggressive and fast-paced way. And now they're saying, well, now we need witnesses. After 31 or 32 times, you said you proved every aspect of your case. That's what you said. Well, you didn't. You said he just said he did. Well, then I don't think we need any witnesses. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Yeah, the senator from New Jersey. The question is from Senator Menendez to the House managers. President Trump has maintained that he withheld U.S. security assistance to Ukraine because he was concerned about corruption. Yet his purported concern about corruption did not prevent his administration from sending congressionally appropriated assistance to Ukraine more than 45 times between January 2017 and June 2019 totaling more than $1.5 billion. So why did the President suddenly become concerned about corruption in early 2019? Mr. Chief Justice, Senator, thank you for the question. Um, he became concerned about corruption, supposedly, in early 2019 because Vice President Biden was running for uh, election for the presidency. That is what the overwhelming amount of the evidence shows, uh, because there's no other legitimate reason, as your question points out. First, the publicly released records of President Trump's April 21 and 25, uh, 25 calls with President Zelensky never mentioned the word corruption. Despite the fact that the talking points for these calls prepared by his own staff listed corruption. Second, in May 2019, the State and Defense Department certified to Congress Ukraine had, quote, taken substantial actions for the purposes of decreasing corruption, end quote, and met the anti-corruption benchmarks this very body has established when it appropriated $250 million of those funds. Third, by the time of the July 25th call, President Zelensky had already established his anti-corruption bona fides, having introduced a number of reform bills in Ukraine. Fourth, on July 26th, the day after his call with President Zelensky, President Trump spoke to Ambassador Sondland, who was in Ukraine. The one question the President asked Ambassador Sondland was not about corruption, but about whether or not President Zelensky was going to do the investigations. Fifth, the released aid uh, as your question points out, uh, Senator, the President released the aid in 2017 and in 2018. And he released it in 2019 only after having gotten caught. In the words of Lieutenant Colonel Vindman and other witnesses, the conditions on the ground had not changed. So, you know, we're hearing a lot, of, a lot tonight about the concerns about corruption, Burisma, Russia. But the facts still matter here. We are here for one reason and one reason only, 
the President of the United States withheld foreign aid that he was happy to give in the two prior years, that suddenly we are to believe something changed, the conditions on the ground changed, and he had an epiphany about corruption within a week of Vice President Biden announcing his candidacy, it doesn't make any sense. And one other thing I will say with regard to the aid is this assertion that President Trump has been the strongest supporter of Ukraine. And I talked about this earlier. Let's just assume that to be the case. And if it is the case, as the President's Council has contended over and over again, then there is, of course, no reason to withhold the aid because nothing has changed. This leads us inevitably only to one conclusion, and that is that the President of the United States used taxpayer dollars, the American people's money, to withhold aid from an ally at war to benefit his political campaign. Do not be distracted by Russian propaganda, by conspiracy theories, by people asking you to look in other directions. That is what this is about. That will not change. The facts will continue to come out. Whether this body subpoenas them or not, the facts will come out. The question now is, will they come out in time? And will you be the ones asking for them when you are going to be making the decision in a couple of days to sit in judgment? Mr. Manager. Mr. Chief Justice. I a senator from Wisconsin. I sent a question to the desk for the President's counsel. Thank you. Question from Senator Johnson for the President's Council. If House managers were certain it would take months to litigate a subpoena for John Bolton, why shouldn't the Senate assume lengthy litigation and make the same decision as the House made, reject a subpoena for John Bolton? Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate, I, I think that's precisely the point. And the fact is that if, in fact, we were, are to go down that road, of a witness or witnesses that had nationals, in, in the case of Ambassador Bolton, uh, high-ranking NSA. This is an individual that's giving president, the president advice at the highest level. The Supreme Court's been very consistent on that. That's where privileges are at their highest level. The presumed privilege, actually, is what the Supreme Court has said. And in a situation like this, I, I think we're going down a road, if the Senate goes this road, of a lengthy proceeding with a lot more witnesses, and then I want to ask this question and just plan it as a thought. Is that going to be the new norm for impeachment? You put an impeachment together in a couple of weeks, we don't like what the president did, we get it through in a two-day proceeding in front of the Judiciary Committee, we wrap it up and we send it up here and say, now go figure it out. Because that's what this is really becoming. That's what this actually is. So I think if we're looking at the institutional interests that are at stake here, this is a very dangerous precedent.
Because what they're doing, what they're saying is basically, well, we have enough to prove our case. That's what, that's what managership says, but not really. So we really need more evidence, not because we need it, because we want it. But we didn't want it bad enough when we were in the House, so we didn't get it. So now you issue the subpoena, and then let's duke it out in court and see what happens. It sounds like to me that this is, they're, they're acting like this is some municipal traffic court proceeding. I remind everybody that we're talking about, under their articles of impeachment, they're requesting the removal of the President of the United States. So, you know, they're already saying in the media that they're ongoing investigation, they're going to continue and investigate. So you could be, are we going to be doing this every three weeks? Every month except in the summer? There's an election months away. The people should have a right to vote. My colleague Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, said that. So and when I look at all of this, whether it's the, the late need of witnesses after you said you proved your case, if it's how the privileges apply or not apply, Senator Schumer said we get anybody we want, we'd be here for a very, very long time. And that's not good for the United States. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The Democratic leader is recognized. I have a question. The question is for the House managers. Would you please respond to the answer that was just given by the President's counsel? I think we can all see what's going on here, and that is if the House wants to call witnesses, if you want to hear from a single witness, if you want to hear what John Bolton has to say, we are going to make this endless. We, the President's lawyers, are going to make this endless. We promise you, we're going to want Adam Schiff to testify. We're going to want Joe Biden to testify. We're going to want Hunter Biden. We're going to want the whistleblower. We're going to want everyone in the world. If you dare, if you have the, the, the unmitigated temerity to want witnesses in a trial, we will make you pay for it with endless delay. The Senate will never be able to go back to its business. That's their argument. How dare the House assume there will be witnesses in a trial? Shouldn't the House have known when they undertook its investigation that the Senate was never going to allow witnesses? That this would be the first impeachment trial in the history of the Republic with no witnesses. So Mr. Sekulow wants me to testify. I'd like Mr. Sekulow to testify about his contacts with Mr. Parnas or Mr. Cipollone about the efforts to implement the President's fight on all subpoenas. I'd like to ask questions about, well, I'd like to ask questions of the President and put him under oath. But we're not here to indulge in fantasy or distraction. We're here to talk about people with pertinent and probative evidence. And you know something? I trust the man behind me, sitting way up, who I can't see right now. But I trust him to make decisions about whether a witness is material or not, whether it's appropriate to out a whistleblower or not, whether, to, uh, whether a particular passage in a document is privileged or not. It's not going to take months of litigation, although that's what the President's counsel is threatening. They're doing the same thing to the Senate they did to the House, which is you try to investigate the President, you try to try the President, we will tie you and your entire chamber up 
in knots for weeks and months. And you know something? They will if you let them. You don't have to let them. You can subpoena John Bolton. You can allow the Chief Justice to make a determination in camera whether something is relevant, whether it deals with Ukraine or Venezuela, whether it's privileged or it isn't, whether it's the privilege is being misapplied to hide criminality or wrongdoing. We don't have to go up and down the courts. We've got a perfectly good Chief Justice sitting right behind me who can make these decisions in real time. So don't be thrown off by this claim, oh, if you even think about it, we are going to make you pay with delays like you've never seen. We're going to call witnesses that will turn this into a circus. It shouldn't be a circus. It should be a fair trial. You can't have a fair trial without witnesses. I think when I was asked that question before, I answered the affirmative when it meant the negative. You can't have a fair trial without witnesses. And you shouldn't presume that when a House impeaches, the Senate trials from now on will be witness-free, will be evidence-free. That's not what the founders intended. If it was, they would have made you the Court of Appeals, but they didn't. They made you the triers of fact. They expected you to hear for witness. They expected you to evaluate their credibility. Don't take my word for it about John Bolton. Look, I'm no fan of John Bolton, although I like him a little more than I used to. Um, but you should hear from him. You should want to. Don't take General Kelly's view for it. Make up your own mind, whether you believe him or Mick Mulvaney, whether you believe John Bolton or the president. Make up your own mind. Yes, we proved our case, counsel. We proved it overwhelmingly. But you chose to contest the fact that the president withheld military aid to coerce an ally. You chose to contest it. You chose to make John Bolton's testimony relevant, pertinent. If you had stipulated the president did as he is charged, then you might make the argument that you're making here. But you have it. You've contested it. And now you want to say, but the Senate shall not hear from this witness. That's not a fair trial. That's not even the appearance of fairness. You can't have a fair trial without basic fairness. Thank you, Mr. Manager. Mr. Chief Justice. The Senator from Louisiana. I send a question to the desk on behalf of myself and Senator Risch. To be both to the White House Counsel and the House Managers. Question from Senator Cassidy and Senator Risch uh, for both uh, uh, parties, beginning uh, with the President's counsel first. We saw a video of Mr. Nadler saying, quote, there must never be a narrowly voted impeachment or an impeachment supported by one of our major political parties and opposed by the other. Such an impeachment will lack legitimacy, will produce divisiveness and bitterness in our politics for years to come, and will call into question the very legitimacy of our political institutions, end quote. Given the well-known dislike of some House Democrats for President Trump and the stated desire, <coughs> excuse me, of some to impeach before the President was inaugurated and the strictly partisan vote in favor of impeachment, do the current proceedings typify that which Mr. Nadler warned against 20 years ago? 
Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, thank you for the question. Uh, the simple answer is yes. These are exactly the sort of proceedings that Manager Nadler warned against 20 years ago. It is a purely partisan impeachment, and it has been clear that at least some factions on the other side of the aisle, on the Democratic side of the aisle, have been intent on finding some way to impeach the president from the day he was sworn in and even before the day he was sworn in. And that's dangerous for our country. To allow partisan venom and enmity like that to take hold and become the, the norm for driving impeachments is exactly what the framers warned against. It's in Federalist Number 65. Hamilton warned against it. He warned against persecution by an intemperate and designing majority in the House of Representatives. And that's exactly what the framers did not want impeachment to turn into. And yet, that is clearly what it is turning into here. And both Manager Nadler and Democratic Leader Schumer in the video that we saw were prescient in forewarning that if we start to go down this road, I mean, one thing that seems to be sure in Washington is that what goes around comes around. If it's done once to one party, it'll happen again from the other party to the other party once the, president, the Office of the Presidency change hands. And then we'll be in a cycle. It'll get worse and worse, and there'll be more and more. And every president will be impeached. That's not what the framers intended, and this body shouldn't allow it to happen here. Thank you. Counsel? The evidence is overwhelming that President Trump pressured a foreign government to target an American citizen for personal and political gain. As part of President Trump's corrupt effort to cheat and solicit foreign interference in the 2020 election. There is a remedy for that type of stunning abuse of power. And that remedy is in the Constitution. That remedy is impeachment and the consideration of removal, which is what this distinguished body is doing right now. That's not partisan. That's not the Democratic Party playbook. That's not the Republican Party playbook. That is the playbook in a democratic republic given to us in a precious fashion by the framers of the Constitution. The impeachment in this instance, of course, and the consideration of removal is necessary because President Trump's conduct strikes at the very heart of our free and fair elections. As North Carolinian Delegate William Davey noted at the Constitutional Convention, quote, if he be not impeachable while in office, he will spare no efforts or means whatsoever to get himself re-elected. The framers of the Constitution understood that perhaps this remedy would one day be necessary. That is why we are here right now. The American people should decide an American election. Not the Ukrainians, not the Russians, not the Chinese, the American people. That is why this president was impeached. That is why it is appropriate for Democrats and Republicans, both sides of the aisle, not as partisans, as Americans,
to hold this president accountable for his stunning abuse of power. Thank you, Mr. Manager. Chief Justice. Senator from Vermont. I send the question to the desk for the House managers. Thank you. Senator Sanders asks the House managers, Republican lawyers have stated on several occasions that two people, Senator Johnson and Ambassador Sondland, were told directly by President Trump that there was no prid pro quo in terms of holding back Ukraine aid in exchange for an investigation into the Bidens. Given the media has documented President Trump's thousands of lies while in office, more than 16,200 as of January 20th, why should we be expected to believe that anything President Trump says has credibility? Well, I'm not quite sure where to begin with that question, except to say that if every defendant in a trial could be exonerated just by denying the crime, there would be no trial. Um, it doesn't work that way. I think it's telling that when Ambassador Sondland spoke with President Trump, the first words out of his mouth, according to Sondland, were, no quid pro quo. That's the kind of thing you do, you blurt out when you've been caught in the act and you say, it wasn't me, I didn't do it. But even then, the president couldn't help himself because the other half of that conversation was no quid pro quo, but Zelensky needs to go to the mic and what's more, he should want to. No quid pro quo, but quid pro quo. Now, this reminds me of, of something that came up earlier. Why would the president, when he's on the call on July 25th, knowing that there are other people listening, why on earth would the president engage in this kind of shakedown with others within earshot? You know, and I think this question comes up in almost every criminal trial. Why would the defendant do that? And sometimes it's very hard to fathom. Sometimes just people make mistakes, but I think in the case of this president, he truly believes that he's above the law. He truly believes that he's above the law. It doesn't matter who's listening. It doesn't matter who's listening. If it's good for him, this is, I guess, a version of the Dershowitz argument, if it's good for him, it's good for the state, because he is the state. If it helps his reelection, it's good for America. And whatever means he needs to effectuate his election, whether it's withholding military aid or what have you, as long as it helps him get elected, well, it's good for America because he is the state. This is why I think he is so irate when people come forward and blow the whistle, not just the whistleblower, but people like John Bolton or General Kelly, and you might ask the question, why do so many people who leave this administration, why do they 
walk away from this president with such a conviction that he is undermining our security that you cannot believe what he says. I mean, think about this. The president's now former chief of staff, General Kelly, doesn't believe the president of the United States. He believes John Bolton. I mean, can everybody be disgruntled? Can it all be a matter of bias? I think we know the answer. I think we know the answer. I mean, how do you believe a president that the Washington Post has documented so many false statements? The short answer is you can't. And I remember early in this presidency, many of us talked about how once as president, you lose your credibility. Once as president, your country or your friends or allies around the world cannot rely on your word just how destructive and dangerous it is to the country. And so we can't accept the denial. It's a false denial. And indeed, if you look at that Wall Street Journal article that Senator Johnson was interviewed in when he had that conversation with Sondland and had that, that sinking feeling because he didn't want those two things tied together, everyone understood they were tied together. It was as simple as two plus two equals four. So can you rely on a false exculpatory? You can't with this president any more than you can with any other accused. And probably given the president's track record a lot less than other accused. But at the end of the day, we have people with firsthand knowledge. You don't have to rely on his false exculpatory. You don't have to rely on Mick Mulvaney as recanting what you all saw so graphically on TV? How does someone who say, uh, without a doubt, this was a factor, this is why he did it, and by the way, Alan Dershowitz lost a criminal case in which he argued that if a corrupt motive was only part of the motive, you can't convict, and the court said, oh yes, you can. If a corrupt motive is any part of it, you can convict. So he's lost that argument before, he makes that argument again before this court. It shouldn't be any more availing here than it was there. At the end of the day, though, there's no more interested party here than the President of the United States. And I think we have seen he will say whatever he believes suits his interest. Let's instead rely on the evidence and rely on others. Uh, and one is just a subpoena away. Thank you, Mr. Manager. Senate, Senator from Colorado. I send the question to the desk. Thank you. Question from Senator Gardner is for counsel to the President. Arguments have been made that any assertion of protection from disclosure is indicative of guilt and that the House's assertion of impeachment power cannot be questioned by the executive. Is that interpretation of the House's impeachment power consistent with the Constitution and what protects the executive from the House abusing the impeachment power in the future? Mr. Chief Justice and Senators, thank you for that question. Um, the, 
the House manager's assertion that any effort to assert a privilege, assert a, a legal immunity, to uh, decline disclosing information is somehow a sign of guilt is not the law. It is actually fundamentally contrary to the law. Legal privileges exist for a reason. We allow people to assert their rights. It's a basic part of the American justice system. And asserting your rights, asserting privileges, immunities, due process rights, even if it means limiting the information that might be turned over to a tribunal, is not and cannot be treated as evidence of guilt. And to the second part of the question, um, as to the House manager's theory that the, the power of impeachment means that the president can't resist any subpoena that they issue pursuant to the power of impeachment, it's not consistent with the Constitution. The Constitution gives the House the sole power of impeachment, which means only that the House is the only place, the only part of the government that has that power. It doesn't say that they have a paramount power of impeachment that destroys all other constitutional rights or privileges or immunities. It doesn't mean that executive privilege suddenly disappears. And the House managers a number of times have cited Nixon versus United States. Um, or I might get it reversed now, United States versus Nixon. The case involving President Nixon. In 1974, the Supreme Court determined that in that particular case, after a balancing of interests, assertions of executive privilege would have to give way. But it did not say that there is just an absolute blanket rule that any time there's an allegation of wrongdoing or that there's an impeachment going on in the background, executive privilege just disappears. That is not the rule from that case. And in fact, even in that context, the court pointed out that there might be an absolute immunity or privilege in the field of foreign relations and national security, which is the field that we're dealing with here. The framers recognized that there could be partisan and illegitimate impeachments. They recognized that the House could impeach for the wrong reasons. They didn't leave the executive branch totally defenseless to that. Executive privilege, immunities rooted in executive privilege, such as the absolute immunity for senior advisors, still applies even in the context of an impeachment. That's part of the checks and balances in the Constitution. They don't fall away simply because the House says, ah, now we want to proceed on impeachment. It's necessary for the proper functioning of the government and the separation of powers for the executive branch to retain that ability to protect confidentiality interests, to protect the prerogatives of the office of the presidency. And for any president to fail to assert those rights and to protect them would do lasting damage to the office of the presidency for the future. And I think that's a critical point to understand, that there is a danger in the legal theory that the House managers are proposing here, because it would do lasting damage to the separation of powers, to the structure of our government, to have the idea be that as soon as the House flips the switch that they want to start proceeding on impeachment, the executive has no defenses and has to open every file and display everything. That's not the way the framers had it in mind because the executive branch has to have still its defenses for its sphere of authority under the Constitution. That's part of the checks and balances. And before I sit down, I'd just like to close, going back to the senator who asked the question about um, the review process on the Bolton book. I believe I was clear about this, but I just want to make 100% sure to the extent the senator was asking for an assurance that only career officials in the NSC review it for classification review. I, I can't make that assurance because it's an NSC process. And I'm not sure at the levels of the process 
there might be other reviews. So I, I didn't intend to give, and I don't want it to be understood as giving that assurance to you. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. The Senator from Massachusetts. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I send a question to the desk for House Managers and Counsel to the President. Thank you. The House managers will respond first to this question from Senator Warren. If Ukrainian President Zelensky called President Trump and offered dirt on President Trump's political rivals in exchange for President Trump handing over hundreds of millions in military aid, that would clearly be bribery and an impeachable offense. So why would it be more acceptable and somehow not impeachable for the reverse? That is, for President Trump to propose this same corrupt bargain. Bribery is obviously an impeachable offense. Bribery is contained within the accusation that the House leveled of, um, of abuse of power. We explained in the Judiciary Committee report the practice of impeachment in the United States has tended to envelop charges of bribery within the broader standard of other high crimes and misdemeanors. That's the historical standard. The elements of bribery are clearly established here. The abuse of power is clearly established when the President of the United States offers something of, extorts a foreign power to get a benefit for himself, withholds military aid, in order to get that foreign power to do something that will help him politically. That is clearly bribery, it's clearly an abuse of power, and there's no question about it. Now, by the way, the question was raised earlier as to what the proper standard of proof is. People's, pointed out the Constitution doesn't say. But the highest standard of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. And these facts have been, have been proven not beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond any doubt. The question, um, I, I think, what this hypothetical shows and Manager Nadler shows is this is an effort to try to smuggle into articles of impeachment that do not mention any crime uh, the idea that there is some crime alleged here. There's not. And I went through that earlier. The articles of impeachment specify a theory of the charge here that is abuse of power. They do not allege the elements of bribery or extortion. They don't mention bribery or extortion. If the House managers had wanted to bring those charges, they had to put them in the articles of impeachment. Just the way a prosecutor, if he wants to put someone on trial for bribery, he's got to put it in the indictment. If you don't, and you come to trial, and then try to start arguing that, well, actually, we think there is bribery going on here, 
that's impermissible. It's prosecutorial misconduct. And so a hypothetical that is contrary to what the facts were here to try to suggest that maybe there's some element of bribery, that's all beside the point. We have specific facts. We have evidence that has been presented in the record. We have a specific article of impeachment. It doesn't say bribery. It doesn't say extortion. And there's no way to get that into this case at this point because the House managers had the opportunity to frame their case. They had every opportunity to frame it any way they wanted because they controlled the whole process. They controlled all the evidence that went in. They controlled all the evidence who, that was the witnesses that were called. And they could frame it any way they wanted. And they didn't put in any crime. There's no crime asserted here. It's not part of the Articles of Impeachment, and it can't be considered now. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Chief Justice. The Senator from Kansas. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I submit to the desk a question on my behalf and on behalf of Senator Cornyn. The question from Senator Moran and Senator Cornyn is for counsel to the president. Is it true that in these proceedings that the Chief Justice can rule on the issue of production of exhibits and the testimony of witnesses over the objection of either the managers or the president's counsel? Would a determination by the Chief Justice be subject to judicial review? Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, thank you for the question. And let me uh, answer it this way, lay out my understanding of the process. If we were going to start talking about um, subpoenaing witnesses, subpoenaing documents, having things come into evidence that way, the first question would be subpoenas would have to be issued to the witnesses or for the documents. And if those subpoenas were resisted on the grounds of some privilege or immunity, then that would have to be sorted out. Because if the president asserted, for example, the immunity of a senior advisor to the president or an executive privilege over certain documents, then the Senate would have to determine whether it was going to fight that assertion and how through some accommodation process and negotiation or if the Senate were going to go to court to litigate that. And that whole process would have to play out. That would be the first stage. And that would have to be gone through any time the president resisted the subpoena on the witnesses or documents. That would take a while. That's what the House managers decided not to do in the House of Representatives. Then, once there had been everything resolved on a subpoena or something like that, it sounds like the question asks um, further in terms of questions here in the trial, admissibility of particular evidence. It's my understanding then that the presiding officer, the Chief Justice, could make an initial determination if there were objections to admission of evidence, but that all such determinations can be challenged by the members of the Senate and would be subject to a vote. So it would not be, I think there were some suggestions earlier that we don't need any other courts, we don't need anything, the involvement of anyone else because the Chief Justice is here. That's not correct. On the subpoenas at the front end, that's not going to be something that's determined just with all respect, sir, to, by the Chief Justice. That's something that would have to be sorted out in the courts or by negotiation with the executive branch. Then once we're here on specific evidentiary objections, 
if we have a witness and there are objections during depositions that later have to be resolved or by a witness on the stand, if there are objections to particular documents, authentication or things like that, the Chief Justice could make an initial ruling, but every one of those rulings could be appealed to this body to vote by a majority vote on whether the evidence would come in or not. And you might have to consider rules, whether you're going to have the federal rules of evidence apply or some modified rules of evidence, and all of that would have to be sorted out. Um, I, I, I don't think that we would get to the stage then of any determinations and evidence here being any way appealed out to the courts. But that would be a process that this body would have to decide what would be admissible in evidence in the trial. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, I send a question. I'm sorry, excuse me? Yes, Senator from Minnesota. Thank you. I send a question to the desk. Thank you. The question from Senator Smith is to the House managers. The President has stated multiple times in public that his actions were perfect, yet he refuses to allow Bolton, Mulvaney, and others to testify under oath. If the President's actions are so perfect, why wouldn't he allow fact witnesses to testify under oath about what he has said publicly? Well, the short answer is, uh, if the president were so confident that this was a perfect call and that those uh, around him would agree that there was nothing nefarious going on, he would want witnesses to come and testify. But of course, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't want his former national security advisor to testify. He doesn't want his current chief of staff to testify. He doesn't want those that were heading OMB to testify. He doesn't want you to hear from any of them. Now, I think that's pretty indicative that he knows what they have to say. Um, and he doesn't want you to hear what they have to say. He doesn't want you to see any of the myriad of documents that he has been withholding from this body as he did from the House. But I also want to address the, uh, the last question, if I could. Is the Chief Justice empowered under the Senate rules to adjudicate questions of witnesses and privilege? And the answer is yes. Can the Chief Justice make those determinations quickly? The answer is yes. Is the Senate empowered to overturn the Chief Justice under certain circumstances? Is the vote 50 or is the vote two-thirds? That would be something that we would have to discuss with the parliamentarian and with the Chief Justice. But the Chief Justice has the power to do it. And what's more, under the Senate rules, you want expedited process? We are here to tell you we will agree with the Chief Justice's ruling on witnesses, on their materiality, on the application or non-application of privilege. We agree to be bound by the Chief Justice. We will not seek to litigate an adverse ruling. We will not seek to appeal an adverse ruling. Will the President's counsel do the same? And if not, 
just as the president doesn't trust what these witnesses have to say, the president's lawyers don't want to rely on what the chief justice's rulings might be. Now, why is that? They, as we understand, the chief justice will be fair. I don't, I'm not for a moment suggesting they don't think the chief justice is fair. Quite the contrary. They're afraid he'll be fair. They're afraid he'll make a fair ruling. That should tell you something about the weakness of their position. They don't want a fair trial with witnesses. They don't want a fair justice to adjudicate these questions. They just want to suggest to you that they will delay and delay and delay. I think it was Thomas Paine said, those who would enjoy the blessings of liberty must undergo the rigors of defending it, the fatigues of defending it. Is it too much fatigue for us to hear from a witness? Is that how little effort we're willing to put into the blessings of freedom and liberty? Is that how little fatigue we are willing to incur? Thank you, Mr. Manager. Mr. Chief Justice. The gentleman from Nebraska. I send a question to the desk on behalf of myself, Tim Scott, and Marco Rubio. Thank you. Question from Senator Sass, and also on behalf of Senator Scott from South Carolina and Mr. Rubio. It's directed to counsel for the president. Mr. Cipollone pointed senators to the, quote, golden rule of impeachment, end quote. In elaborating on that rule, can you offer your views on the limiting principles, both in the nature of offenses that should be considered and in the proximity to elections for future impeachments toward the end of safeguarding public trust by putting guardrails on both parties. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate. In elaborating on the golden rule of impeachment, I would say principle number one, if we listen to what the Democratic senators said in the past and, and the House managers and other members of the House, that should guide us. And that principle is, and it's a principle based in precedent, that you shouldn't, have, you shouldn't have a partisan impeachment. If you have a partisan impeachment, that in and of itself is a danger sign. Because that means that there's not the bipartisan support that even the Speaker of the House has said you would need to even begin to consider uh, the impeachment of a president, because it is the overturning of an election. They don't dispute that. It is the overturning of an election. In addition, it is the removal of this president from an election that's occurring in just months from now, which I think is another important principle. I think the other uh, important fact here is that there's actually bipartisan opposition to this impeachment. Democrats voted against it in the House of Representatives. That's an important principle. Uh, the, the other... The, the other principle would be that if you, if you have a process that's unprecedented, if you have a process that's unprecedented, that should be something that ought to be considered. Always in the past, there's been an authorized, there's been a vote authorizing an impeachment. Why? Because they say the House is, 
the sole authority of an impeachment, uh, an impeachment, but that's the House, not the Speaker of a House at a press conference. That's another important consideration. Another important consideration is all of the historical precedents related to rights given to a president in a process have been violated. We haven't seen anything like that in our history. The president's counsel wasn't able to attend, wasn't allowed to cross-examine witnesses, wasn't allowed to call witnesses. And they're coming here and basically asking you, number one, to call witnesses that they refuse to pursue. But more importantly, I think what they're saying is do what they did. Only call witnesses that they want. Don't allow the president to call witnesses that the president wants. That doesn't work. That's not due process. You know, the other important principle there is we hear a lot about fairness, but in the American justice system, fairness is about fairness to the accused. Fairness is about fairness to the accused. So how you could suggest that what we're going to do is we're going to have a trial, we'll get the witnesses as prosecutors that we want, even though you got to call no witnesses in the House, you got to cross-examine none of the witnesses that we called, and have we got a deal for you? Let us call another witness, but you call none. That's another principle. And I think the reality is that what, what Professor Dershowitz said is true. I think when you're thinking about impeachment as much as we can as human beings, we should think about it in, in terms of the president is the president regardless of, of party. And how would we treat a president of our own party in similar circumstances? And I think, I think that's the golden rule of impeachment. And I don't think we have to guess here, because I think we have lots of statements uh, from Democrats when we were here last time around, and principles, and I said, I, I, I agree with them. I agree with those principles. I just ask that they be applied here. Uh, so that's my answer, thank you. Thank you, counsel. Senator from Illinois. Thank you. Senator Durbin asked the House managers, if President Trump were to actually invoke executive privilege in this proceeding, wouldn't he be required to identify the specific documents or communications containing sensitive material that he seeks to protect? As stated before, executive privilege is a very limited privilege that must be claimed by the president. He has at no time claimed executive privilege. Rather, he's claimed uh, absolute immunity, a non-existent concept that every court that has ever considered it has rejected it. Um, instead, he has simply said, we will uh, uh, oppose all subpoenas, we will deny to the House all information, all information, whatever they want, they can't have. This is way beyond the pale. And it is intended to, because 
He fears the facts. And the facts are, he tried to extort a foreign government through withholding military aid that this Congress had voted, he broke the law, to withhold the aid that this Congress had mandated be sent to them in order to pressure them into announcing an investigation of his political opponents. Those are the facts. Those facts are proven beyond any doubt at all. So what do we have? We have, we have a diversion after diversion. Diversions about what the Hunter Biden may have done in Ukraine. Irrelevant. Whatever he did in Ukraine, the question is, did the president withhold foreign military aid in order to extort a foreign government into helping him rig an American election? We hear diversions about privilege. We hear questions about witnesses. We know he's telling the senators, don't allow witnesses. Why? Because he knows what the witnesses will say. We hear arguments from his counsels. Well, we've taken enough time with witnesses. The House shouldn't have voted if it didn't have proof positive. We had proof positive. We voted it. Doesn't mean you shouldn't have more proof if it comes forward. There is no argument that Mr. Bolton shouldn't be permitted to testify, and he's not going to waste our time. He's told us he'll, take, he'll testify with a subpoena. So all of these the questions are diversions. They're diversions by a president who is desperate because we have proven the facts that he threatened a foreign government, not just threatened them, did in fact withhold mandated American military aid from them in order to blackmail them into serving his political purposes for private political purposes. We know that. Everything else is a diversion. No witnesses, because maybe those witnesses will testify in a way he doesn't want. Privilege, when, when you're dealing with uh, uh, accusations of wrongdoing against the president, the Supreme Court told us in the Nixon case, privilege yields. So all of these arguments are diversions. Keep your eye on the facts. The facts we have proven, and let's see the additional witnesses. And as, the, as Mr. Schiff said, witnesses should not be a threat, not to the Senate, not to anybody else. And it's not going to waste too much time because the Chief Justice can rule on relevant questions of relevancy or, 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 or privilege or anything else. But the facts are the facts. The President is a danger to the United States. He's tried to rig the next election. He's abused his power. And he must be brought to heel, and the country must be saved from his continuing efforts to rig our elections. Thank you, Mr. Manager. Mr. Chief Justice. The Senator from Utah. I submit a question to the desk. Thank you. question from Senator Romney is for the counsel to the President. On what specific date did President Trump first order the hold on security assistance to Ukraine, and did he explain the reason at that time?
Mr. Chief Justice, Senator, thank you for the question. I don't think that there is evidence in the record of a specific date, the specific date. But there is testimony in the record that um, individuals at OMB and elsewhere were aware of a hold uh, as of July 3rd. And there is evidence in the record of the President's rationales from uh, even earlier than that time. Um, there is an email from June 24th it has been publicly released. It was publicly released in response to a FOIA request that is from uh, one DOD staffer up to the chief of staff in DOD, uh, excuse me, sorry, from the chief of staff down to a staffer in DOD relating on the subject line POTUS follow-up. It's follow-up from a meeting with POTUS, the President of the United States, explaining questions that had been asked about the Ukraine assistance, which were specifically, what was the funding used for, i.e., did it go to U.S. firms, who funded it, and what do other NATO members spend to support Ukraine? Um, so from the very beginning in June, the President had expressed his concern about burden sharing, what do other NATO members do. Similarly, in the July 25th transcript, um, there was uh, the, the President asked President Zelensky specifically, he raised the issue of burden sharing, again showing that that was his concern. Um, in addition, uh, it was, I believe, Mr. Morrison who testified that uh, he was aware from OMB that the President had expressed concerns about corruption and that there was a review process to consider corruption in Ukraine. So the evidence in the record shows that the President raised concerns at least as of June 24th, that people were aware of the hold as of July 3rd. The President's concerns about burden sharing were in the email on June 24th. They're reflected in the July 25th call. Similarly, there's testimony from later in the summer that the President had raised concerns about corruption in Ukraine. and. The, so that is the evidence in the record that reflects the President's concerns. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Chief Justice. The Senator from Nevada. Thank you. I send a question to the desk. Thank you. question from Senator Cortez Masto is to the House managers. The President's counsel has claimed that the President was unfairly excluded from House impeachment processes. Can you describe the due process President Trump received during House proceedings compared to previous Presidents? Did President Trump take advantage of any opportunities to have his counsel participate? Mr. Chief Counsel and to the Senator, thank you so much for that question. Let me make this plain. The President is not the victim here. The victim in that, this case is the American 
people. President Trump was invited to attend and participate in all of the Judiciary Committee hearings. He could have had Mr. Cipollone, Mr. Sekulow, or any of the other attorneys who have joined at the Council's table participate throughout the Judiciary Committee's proceedings in the House. They could have attended all of the Judiciary hearings and imagine this, cross-examine witnesses, raise objections, present evidence favorable to the President if they had any to present. And they could have requested to have President Trump's own witnesses called. But President Trump refused to participate. He wrote to the House, and I quote, if you are going to impeach me, do it now, fast, so we can have a fair trial in the Senate. In every event, President Trump was asked and indeed legally required to provide evidence during the Intelligence Committee's investigation, but he refused, as we've already said over and over again, to produce any documents or allow witnesses to testify. We thank God for the 17 public servants who came forward in spite of the President's efforts to obstruct. In, in addition, Republican members in Congress had an equal opportunity to ask questions during the depositions and the hearings in both the Intelligence and the Judiciary Committee hearings. Republican members called three witnesses during the Intelligence Committee's hearings and an additional witness during the Judiciary Committee's hearings. Of course, a House impeachment inquiry is not a full-blown criminal trial. We do know that, but this is a trial, and obviously the President is being afforded every due process right during these proceedings. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice. The Senator from Alaska. I send a question to the desk. Thank you. Senator Murkowski's question is for the House managers. In early October, Mr. Cipollone sent the letter saying none of the subpoenas issued by the House were appropriately authorized and thus invalid. When the House passed their resolution authorizing the impeachment inquiry and granting subpoena power to the Intelligence and Judiciary Committees, the body could have addressed the deficiency the White House pointed out and proclaimed those subpoenas as valid exercises of the impeachment inquiry. Alternatively, the House could have reissued the subpoenas after the resolution was adopted. Please explain why neither of those actions took place. Mr. Chief Justice, Senator, I appreciate your question. These arguments, plain and simple, are a red herring. 
The House's impeachment inquiry and its subpoena were fully authorized by the Constitution, House rules, and President. It is for the House, not the President, to decide how to conduct an impeachment inquiry. The House's autonomy to structure its own proceedings for an impeachment inquiry is rooted in two provisions of Article I of the Constitution. First, Article I vests the House with the sole power of impeachment. It contains no requirements, no requirements as to how the House must carry out that responsibility. Second, Article I states that the House is empowered to determine the rules of proceedings. Taken together, these provisions give the House sole discretion to determine the manner in which it investigate, deliberate, and vote for grounds of impeachment. In exercising its responsibility to investigate and consider the impeachment of a President of the United States, the House is constitutionally entitled to relevant information from the executive branch concerning the President's misconduct. The framers, the courts, and past presidents have recognized and, and honored Congress's right to information in an impeachment investigation and is critical as safeguard to our system of divided powers. Otherwise, a president could hide his own wrongdoing to prevent Congress from discovering impeachable misconduct, effectively nullifying, nullifying Congress's impeachment power. That is precisely what President Trump has tried to achieve here. The president has asserted the power to determine for himself which congressional subpoenas he will respond to and those that he will not. The president's counsel would have you believe that each time anyone in the executive branch gets a subpoena, it's open season for creative lawyers in the White House and DOJ to start inventing theories about House rules and parliamentary precedent. This is not how the separation of powers works. And to accept that argument would wholly undermine the House and Senate's ability to provide oversight of the executive branch. It would also make impeachment a nullity. The president argues that there was no resolution fully authorizing the impeachment inquiry. But again, there is no requirement for the full House to take a vote before conducting an impeachment inquiry. President Trump and his lawyers invented this theory. As Chief Judge Howell of the U.S. District Court in D.C. has stated, and this is a direct quote, this claim has no textual support in the U.S. Constitution or governing rules in the House. The Constitution itself says nothing about how the House may exercise its sole impeachment, power of impeachment, but instead confirms the House shall have the role, the sole power to determine the rules of its own proceedings. This conclusion is also confirmed by precedent. Numerous judges have been subjected to impeachment investigations in the House, and even impeached by the House and convicted by the Senate without any previous vote of the House authorizing an impeachment inquiry. As recently as the 114th Congress, the Judiciary Committee considered 
impeaching the IRS commissioner following a referral from another committee and absent a full House vote. The Judiciary Committee began an investigation into President Nixon's misconduct for four months before approval of a full House resolution. The House rules also do not preclude committees from inquiring into the potential grounds for impeachment. Instead, those rules vest the relevant committees of the House with robust investigatory powers, including the power to issue subpoenas. Each of the three committees that conducted the initial investigation of President Trump's conduct in Ukraine, intelligence oversight and foreign affairs, indisputably had oversight jurisdiction over these matters. The President's counsel has pointed to the Nixon impeachment with a full house. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I yield back. Yeah. Mr. President. Oh, the Senator from Rhode Island. Mr. President, I send a um, question to the desk. And because my question references an earlier question, I have attached that earlier question as a reference to the presiding officer and the parliamentarian in case it should be of interest. Thank you. Question from Senator Whitehouse is to counsel for the president. White House counsel refused to answer a direct question from Senator Collins and Senator Murkowski, saying he could only cite to the record. Five minutes afterward, House counsel read recent newspaper stories to the Senate from outside the House record. Could you please give an accurate and truthful answer to the senator's question? Did the President ever mention the Bidens in connection to corruption in Ukraine before Vice President, uh, Vice President Biden announced his candidacy in April 2019? What did the President say to whom and when? Mr. Chief Justice, Senator, thank you for the question. I don't think that I refused to answer the question at all. We had been advised by the House managers that they were going to object if we attempted to introduce anything that was not either in the public domain, so things that are in newspaper articles, things like that that are out there we could refer to, or things that were in the record. And so I can't, I, I, I'm not in a position to go back into things that the president might have said in private, and there's been no discovery into that. It's not part of this inquiry. So I can't go telling now about things that the president might have said to cabinet members. I'm not in a position to say that. I can tell you what's in the public, and I can tell you what's in the record. And I answered the question fully to the best of my ability based on what is in the public domain and what is in the record. Um, I'd like to take a moment to uh, also respond to uh, the last question that was posed by Senator Murkowski um, with respect to the vote uh, on authorizing the um, issuance of subpoenas, because there has always been a vote from the full House to authorize any impeachment inquiry into a presidential impeachment. It was that way in the Johnson impeachment. 
It was that way in the Nixon impeachment. There have been references to the fact that the House Judiciary Committee began some investigatory work before the House actually voted on the resolution. I think it was resolution 803 to authorize the impeachment inquiry. But all of that work was simply gathering things that were in the public domain or that had been already gathered by other committees. And there was no compulsory process issued. And in fact, Chairman Rodino of the House Judiciary Committee specifically determined when there was a move to have the House Judiciary Committee issue subpoenas after the Saturday Night Massacre, that the committee lacked the authority to issue any compulsory process until there had been a vote by the full House to authorize the committee to do that. And this is not some esoteric special rule about impeachments, as I've tried to explain. This is just a fundamental rule under the Constitution about how authority that has been given by we the people to chambers of the legislature, to either the House or the Senate, once it's given there to the House, how does it get to a committee? It can only get down to a committee if it's delegated by the House. That can only happen if the House votes. And there is no standing rule that gives the House Judiciary Committee authority to use the power of impeachment as opposed to the authority to legislate. There's no rule that gives it to use the power to use the uh, authority of impeachment to issue compulsory process. Rule 10 doesn't mention impeachment at all. The word doesn't appear in it. And that's why it has always been the understanding that there must be a vote from the House to authorize the House Judiciary Committee, or in this case, it was contrary to all prior practice, it was given to Manager Schiff's committee and other committees, the authority to use the power of impeachment to issue subpoenas. It was very clear to the House of Representatives that the position of the executive branch was that all of the subpoenas issued before House Resolution 660 were invalid on their face, and Senator Murkowski's question is exactly correct. There was no effort in House Resolution 660 either to attempt to retroactively authorize those subpoenas or to say that uh, th those subpoenas, to, to retroactively authorize those subpoenas or then to reissue them under House Resolution 660. So the subpoenas remained invalid and there was no response from the House to that. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Senator, Senator from Missouri. Mr. Chief Justice, I sent to the desk a question for both counsel to the President and the House managers on my own behalf and on behalf of Senator Cruz, Senator Daines, and Senator Braun. Thank you. President's counsel will respond first to the question from Senator Hawley and the other senators. When he took office, Viktor Shogun, Ukraine's prosecutor general, vowed to investigate Burisma. Before Vice President Joe Biden pressed Ukrainian officials on corruption, including pushing for the removal of Shokin, did the White House counsel's office or the office of the vice president legal counsel issue ethics advice approving Mr. Biden's involvement in matters involving corruption in Ukraine or Shokin, despite the presence of Hunter Biden on the board of Burisma, a company widely considered to be corrupt. Did Vice President Biden ever ask Hunter Biden to step down from the board of Burisma? Mr. 
Mr. Chief Justice, Senator, thank you for the question. Um, we're not aware of any evidence that then-Vice President Biden sought any ethics opinion. Uh, we are aware that uh, both Amos Hochstein and Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Kent testified, uh, excuse me, Amos Hochstein is in the public domain, Deputy Assistant Secretary Kent testified in the proceedings before the House that they each raised the issue with Vice President Biden of the potential appearance of a conflict of interest with his son uh, Hunter being on the board of Burisma. Deputy Assistant Secretary Kent testified that although he raised that issue at the Vice President's office, the response was that the Vice President's office, um, the Vice President was busy dealing then with the illness of his other son and there was no action taken. So from what we know, uh, there wasn't any effort to seek an ethics opinion. We're not aware of an ethics opinion having been issued. Although the f issue was flagged for the Vice President's office, we're not aware that Vice Pre the President Biden um, asked his son to step down or that any other action was taken. And I, I believe that Vice President Biden has said that he never discussed, he said publicly, he never discussed his son's uh, overseas business dealings with him. Thank you. Thank you. So Mr. Chief Justice and Senator, I appreciate your question. The facts about Vice President Biden's conduct are clear and do not change. Let's go through them. First, every witness asked about this topic testified that Mr. Shulkin was widely considered to be a corrupt and ineffective prosecutor who did not prosecute corruption. Shokin was so corrupt that the entire free world, the United States, the European Union, the International Monetary Fund, pressed for his office to be cleaned up. So I would caution you to be skeptical of anything that Mr. Shokin claims. Second, witnesses including our own anti-corruption advocate, Ambassador Yovanovitch, remember that very dedicated anti-corruption ambassador testified that Shulkin's removal made it more likely that investigations of corrupt European Ukrainian companies would move forward. Let me repeat that. The dismissal of Shulkin made it more likely that Burisma would be investigated. Third, Burisma was not under scrutiny at the time Joe Biden called for Shulkin's ouster. According to the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of the Ukrainian Organization, several witnesses testified is effective at fighting corruption. Shokin's office investigated Burisma, but the probe focused on a period before Hunter Biden joined the company. But again, in another investigation was warranted, dismissing Shokin would have made that more likely. Thank you. Senator Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, I have a question uh, for the House managers I will send to the desk. Thank you.
Senator King's question for the House managers reads as follows. Mr. Rudolph Giuliani was in Ukraine exclusively on a political errand by his own admission. So doesn't the President's mention of Giuliani by name in the July 25th call conclusively establish the real purpose of the call? Mr. Chief Justice, uh, members of the Senate, Mr. Giuliani played a key role in President Trump's months-long scheme to pressure Ukraine to announce political investigations to benefit the President's re-election campaign. Remarkably, the President's defense is wrapping themselves in Rudy Giuliani's involvement in Ukraine while trying to minimize his role. There is overwhelming evidence, not just testimony, but texts, call records, and other corroborating documents establishing Mr. Giuliani's key role in executing the President's pressure campaign beginning in early spring 2019 with the smear campaign against Ambassador Yovanovitch and then throughout the summer. Everyone knew that Rudy Giuliani was the gatekeeper to the President on Ukraine. On May 10th, Mr. Giuliani canceled the trip to Ukraine during which he planned to dig up dirt on former Vice President Biden and on a discredited conspiracy theory after his plans became public. He admitted, we're not meddling in an election, we're meddling in an investigation. He explained that someone could say it's improper and this isn't, someone could say it's improper and this isn't foreign policy. I'm asking them to do an investigation that they're already doing and that other people are telling them to stop. And he was talking about the investigations of the Bidens. During a May 10th appearance on Fox News, Giuliani also said that he canceled his trip because there are enemies of Trump around President Zelensky. Mr. Giuliani's associate, Lev Parnas, produced a set of documents to the House Intelligence Committee that included a letter, and I believe we have slide 50 here. Mr. Giuliani sent to President-elect Zelensky during this time period. In the letter dated May 10th, Mr. Giuliani informed Zelensky that he represented President Trump as a private citizen, not as President of the United States. He also requested a meeting with President Zelensky on May 13th and 14th, along with Victoria Tonsing in his capacity as personal counsel to President Trump and with his knowledge and consent, close quote. Mr. Giuliani confirmed President Trump's knowledge of his actions with regard to Ukraine, stating, he knows what I'm doing. Sure, as his lawyer, he added, my only client is the President of the United States. He's the one I have an obligation to report to. Tell him what happened. President Trump repeatedly instructed senior American and Ukrainian officials to talk to Rudy, demonstrating that Mr. Giuliani was a key player in the corrupt scheme. In a May 23rd Oval Office meeting to discuss Ukraine policy, President Trump directed his hand-picked three amigos to talk to Rudy. In response, Ambassador Sondland testified, Secretary Perry, Ambassador Volker, and I worked with Mr. Rudy Giuliani on Ukraine matters at the express direction of the President of the United States. After two explosive White House meetings on July 10th in which Ambassador Sondland explicitly conveyed the President's demand for political investigations to Ukrainian officials, top Ukrainian aide Andrei Yermak texted Ambassador Volker, I feel that the key for many things is Rudy. And what was Rudy asking? Investigations of two American citizens, not corruption in general, 
investigation. In fact, he wasn't even asking for an investigation. He was just asking for an announcement of an investigation so that American citizens, the Bidens, could be smeared. On the July 25th call with President Zelensky, President Trump mentioned Rudy Giuliani by name no less than four times and informed Zelensky that Rudy very much knows what's happening. He told President Zelensky, Mr. Giuliani is a highly respected man. He added, Rudy very much knows what's happening. In August, Mr. Giuliani met with a top Ukrainian aide and conveyed that Ukraine must issue a public statement announcing investigations. Ambassador Sondland and Volker then worked closely with Giuliani and the Ukrainians to ensure that the planned statement would meet Mr. Giuliani's demands. Specifically, Mr. Giuliani insisted that the statement include specific references to Burisma and the 2016 election and Biden. Throughout this process, Sondland stated that he knew that they needed the approval of Giuliani for the press statement and that they knew Giuliani represented the interests of the president. Rudy Giuliani admitted on live television to pressuring Ukraine to look into Joe Biden, not into corruption, into Joe Biden. In September 2019, Chris Cuomo asked Giuliani, so you did ask Ukraine to look into Joe Biden? In response, Giuliani insisted, of course I did. Mr. Giuliani insisted that Ukraine look into an American citizen on behalf of his client, President Trump. Finally, during the pendency of the impeachment proceedings, Mr. Giuliani has not ceased in his efforts to dig up dirt to benefit the president. In December, he again traveled to Ukraine to meet with Ukrainian officials, which he described as a secret assignment, and after which the president reportedly called him immediately upon landing and asked, what did you get? To which Mr. Giuliani responded, more than you can imagine. It's worth noting that in Ms. Raskin's presentation about Giuliani, thank, she never thank mentioned you, Mr. his Manager. repeated requests for investigations into Biden, not into corruption. Mr. Chief Justice. The Senator from Florida. I send a question to the desk on behalf of myself, Senator Sass, Braun, Risch, McSally, Roberts, and Hoven. Thank you. The question from Senator Rubio and the other senators, uh, senators is for counsel for the president. How would the framers view removing a president without an overwhelming consensus of the American people and on the basis of articles of impeach impeachment supported by one political party and opposed by the others, by the other? Thank you, senators. Alexander Hamilton addressed that issue very directly. He said the greatest danger of impeachment is if it turns on the votes of one party being greater than the votes of another party in either house. So I think they would be appalled to see an impeachment going forward in violation of the Schumer rule and the rules of other congressmen that were good enough for us during the Clinton impeachment but seem to have changed dramatically in the current situation. The criteria that have been set out are so lawless, they basically paraphrase Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who said, there is no law. Anything the House wants to do to impeach is impeachable. That's what's happened today. That places the House of Representatives above the law. We've heard much about no one's above the law. 
the House of Representatives is not above the law. They may not use the Maxine Waters. Gerald Ford made the same point, but it was about the impeachment of a judge. Judges are different. There are many of them. There's only one president. But to use that criteria, that it's whatever the House says it is, whatever the Senate says it is, turns those bodies into lawless bodies in violation of the intent of the framers. Manager Schiff confused my argument when he talked about intent and motive. You've said I'm not a constitutional law, but you admitted I'm a criminal lawyer, and I've taught criminal law for 50 years at Harvard. And there is an enormous distinction between intent and motive. Somebody shoots somebody, the intent is that when you pull the trigger, you know a bullet will leave and will hit somebody and may kill them. That is the intent to kill. Motive can be revenge, it could be money, it almost never is taken into consideration except in extreme cases. There are cases where motive counts. But let's consider a hypothetical growing out of the situation that we've discussed. Let's assume that President Obama uh, had been told by his advisors that it really is important to send lethal weapons to the Ukraine. But then he gets a call from his pollster and his political advisor who says, we know it's in the national interest to send lethal weapons to the Ukraine, but we're telling you that the left wing of your party is really going to give you a hard time if you start selling lethal weapons and getting into a lethal war potentially with Russia. Would anybody here suggest that was impeachable? Or let's assume President Obama said, I promised to bomb Syria if they had chemical weapons, but I'm now told by my pollsters that bombing Syria would hurt my electoral chances. Certainly not impeachable at all. So let me apply that to the current situation. As you know, I said previously, there are three levels of possible uh, motive. One is the motive is pure. Only interest is in the way what's good for the country. In the real world, that rarely happens. The other one is the motive is completely corrupt. I want money, kickback. But then there's the third one that's so complicated and that's often misunderstood. When you have a mixed motive, a motive in which you think you're doing good for the country, but you're also doing good for yourself. You're doing good for me, you're doing good for thee, you're doing good and you all together put it in a bundle in which you're satisfied that you're doing absolutely the right thing. Let me give you a perfect example of that from the case. The argument has been made that the President of the United States only became interested in corruption when he learned that uh, Joe Biden was running for uh, a president. Let's assume, hypothetically, that the President was in his second term. And he said to himself, you know, Joe Biden's running for president. I really should now get concerned about whether his son is corrupt. Because he's not only a candidate, and he's not running against me, I'm finished with my term, but he could be the President of the United States. And if he's the president of the United States and he has a corrupt son, the fact that he's announced his candidacy is a very good reason for upping the interest in his son. If he wasn't running for president, he's a has-been. He's the former vice president of the United States. Okay, big deal. But if he's running for president, that's an enormous big deal. So the difference the House managers would make is whether the president's in his first term or his second term whether he's running for re-election or not running for re-election. I think they would have to concede 
that he was not running for re-election, this would not be a corrupt motive, or it would be a mixed motive, but leaning on the side of national interest. If he is running for re-election, suddenly that turns it into an impeachable Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, counsel. Oh, the senator from Minnesota. Mr. Chief Justice, I submit a question to the desk directed to the House managers. Thank you. The question is from Senator Klobuchar to the House managers. I was on the trial committee for the last impeachment trial in the Senate, which involved Judge Thomas Porteous, who was ultimately removed. During that time, the Senate trial committee heard from 26 witnesses, 17 of whom had not previously testified in the House. What possible reason could there be for allowing 26 witnesses in a judicial impeachment trial and hearing none for a president's trial. Chief Justice, Senator, as you know, I'm quite familiar with the Porteous impeachment. Um, someone asked me the last time I tried a case, uh, the answer is probably 30 years ago, except for the impeachment of Thomas Porteous, uh, when I last spent some quality time with you. Um, there is no difference in terms of the Constitution. I would say that the need for witnesses in the impeachment trial of a President of the United States is a far more compelling circumstance than the impeachment of a judge. Now, you might say, well, in the impeachment of a judge, how is it possible that the time of the Senate could be occupied by calling witnesses that, that as precious as your time is, we would occupy your time calling dozens of witnesses, but in the impeachment of a president, it's not worth the time. It's too much of an imposition. Again, I would argue that the imperative of calling judges and having a fire trial when we are adjudicating the guilt of the President of the United States is paramount. Now, we've always argued that the trial should be fair to the President and the American people. And yes, it's a big deal to impeach a President and remove that President from office. It's also a big deal if you leave in place a President when the House has proven that President has committed impeachable misconduct and is likely to continue committing it. Because there's no doubt, I think from the record, that not only did the President solicit Russian interference in 2016, but solicited Ukraine's interference in the upcoming election, solicited China's interference, as my colleague just said, uh, had Rudy Giuliani, his personal agent, uh, in Ukraine doing the same kind of thing just last month. and. Uh, Senator, in response to that question, isn't it dispositive that Giuliani, the personal agent of the president, is running this Biden operation 
rather than any department of government? Isn't that really dispositive of whether this was policy or politics? And I think the answer is yes. Giuliani's made it abundantly clear. I'm not here doing foreign policy. That's the president's own lawyer. I'm not here to do foreign policy. Now, Professor Dershowitz just made a rather astounding argument that an investigation of Joe Biden that is unwarranted, unmerited, suddenly becomes warranted if he runs for president. Now, he posited that in the president's second term. But it doesn't matter whether he's in his first term or his second term. An illegitimate investigation of Joe Biden doesn't somehow become legitimate because he's running for president unless you view your interests as synonymous with the nation's interests. I think it's the most profound conflict for a president of one party, whether he's running for re-election or not, to suggest that all of a sudden an investigation of a leading candidate in the opposite party is justified because now they're running for president. I mean, you really have to step aside from what's going on to imagine that anyone could make that argument, that, that running for office, running for president now, means that you are a more justified target of investigation than when you weren't. That cannot be. That cannot be. But that's essentially what's being argued here. To get to conclude, uh, Senator, um, the case for witnesses in a presidential impeachment where either on the one side you remove a president or on the other side you leave in place a president who may pose a continuing risk to the country is far more compelling to take the time to hear from witnesses than a corrupt Louisiana judge who only impacts those who come before his court. All of us come before the court of the American people. Thank you, Mr. Manager. Mr. Chief Justice. The Senator from Montana. I send a question to the desk on behalf of myself, and Senators Langford and Senator Hawley. Thank you. Excuse me. The question from Senator Daines, uh, Langford, and Hawley is for counsel for the president. Over the past 244 years, eight judges have been removed from office by the U.S. Senate, but never a president. The eight judges have been removed for bribery, perjury, tax evasion, waging war against the United States, and other unlawful actions. How do the current impeachment articles differ from previous convictions and removals by the Senate? There's an enormous difference between impeaching and removing a judge, even a justice, and impeaching and removing a president. No judge, not even the Chief Justice, is the judicial branch. You are the head of the judicial branch, but there is a judicial branch. The president is the executive branch. He is irreplaceable. 
There isn't always a vice president. Remember, we had a period of time when there was no vice president. We needed a constitutional amendment. So there's no comparison between impeaching a judge and impeaching a president. Moreover, there's a textual difference. The Constitution provides that judges serve during good behavior. That's the Congressman Schiff standard. Uh, and it's a great standard. We wish everybody served only during good behavior. But the Constitution doesn't say that the president shall serve during good behavior. The big difference is the president runs every four years. And the public gets to judge his good behavior. Judges don't run. And so there's only one judge of the good behavior, namely the impeachment process. And so to make a comparison is to make the same mistake that when people compare the British system to the American system. We've heard a lot of argument that we adopted the British system by adopting five words, and high crimes, other crimes, and misdemeanors. Yeah, those words may have been borrowed from Great Britain, but the whole concept of impeachment was not. First of all, impeachment no longer exists in Great Britain, but when it did, it only operated for low-level and middle-level people. All the impeachment trials that have been cited involve this guy in India, this guy in the commerce, this guy here, this guy there, utterly replaceable people. The British system, on the other hand, you can get rid of the head of state, the head of government, rather, by a simple vote of no confidence. That's what the framers rejected. The framers rejected that for a president. And so the notion that we borrowed the British system has it exactly backwards. We rejected the British system. We did not want the president to serve at the pleasure of the legislature. We wanted the president to serve at the pleasure of the voters. Judges don't serve at the pleasure of the voters, so there needs to be different criteria and broader criteria. And those criteria have been used in practice. For the most part, judges have been impeached for criminal and removed for criminal behavior. But take an example that was given. If a judge is completely drunk and incapacitated and cannot, uh, cannot do his job, uh, it's, it's easy to imagine how a judge might have to be removed for that. But the president, there's a, an amendment to the Constitution, the 25th Amendment specifically provided because there was a gap in the Constitution. And please, members of the Senate, it's important to understand your role is not to fill gaps that the framers deliberately left open. Good arguments have been made. Why it's important to make sure people don't abuse their power. People don't commit maladministration. But the framers left open, left those gaps. Your job is not to fill in the gaps. Your job is to apply the Constitution as the framers wrote it, and that doesn't include abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Chief Justice. The Senator from Delaware. I send a question to the desk for the President's counsel. Thank you. The question from Senator Coons to the President's counsel is this. The President's brief states, quote, Congress has forbidden foreigners' involvement in American elections, end quote. However, in June 2019, President Trump said that if Russia or China offered information on his opponent, quote, there's nothing wrong with listening, end quote, and he might not alert the FBI because, quote, give me a break, life doesn't work that way, end quote. 
Does President Trump agree with your statement that foreigners' involvement in American elections is illegal? Mr. Chief Justice, Senator, thank you for the question. Um, I think Congress has specified specific ways in which foreigners cannot be involved in elections. Foreigners can't vote in elections. There are restrictions on foreign contributions to campaigns, things like that. The, um, when the whistleblower originally made a complaint about this July 25th call, and that was reviewed by the Inspector General for the Intelligence Community, he framed that whistleblower's complaint and wrote a cover letter framing it in terms of those laws. And he said that there might be an issue here related to soliciting foreign uh, contribution to campaign, a thing of value, foreign campaign interference. That was specifically reviewed by the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice concluded that there was no such violation here. So that, that is not something that is involved in this case. President Trump's the interview with ABC that you cited does not involve uh, something that is a foreign campaign contribution, something that is addressed by the laws passed by Congress. He was referring to the possibility that information could come from a source. And I think he pointed out in that interview that he might contact the FBI, he might uh, listen to something. But mere information is not something that would violate the campaign finance laws. And if there is credible information, credible information of wrongdoing by someone who is running for a public office, it's not campaign interference for credible information about wrongdoing to be brought to light, if it's credible information. So I, I think that the idea that any information that happens to come from overseas is necessarily campaign interference is, is a mistake, that's, uh, that's a non sequitur. Information that is credible, that potentially shows wrongdoing by someone who happens to be running for office, if it's credible information, is relevant information for the voters to know about, for people to be able to decide on who is the best candidate for an office. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The majority leader is recognized. Mr. Chief Justice, <clears throat> I recommend we take a break until 10 p.m. and then finish up for the evening. Without objection, so ordered.